Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. We have a different show this week. We're not going to have our, our usual panel. Uh, actually, uh, Citizen Action of Wisconsin staff and 30 members were out in Washington, D.C. for the founding convention of People's Action, which is the new, very powerful national organizing network that Citizen Action of Wisconsin is a part of. And when we were out there, there were a number of headliners giving speeches at the convention, and uh, we managed to get interviews with with some of those headliners. And so this show is going to be co a collection of three different interviews we recorded this week, again at the People's Action Founding Convention. And uh, our first interview is going to be with Van Jones, who is very well known as a CNN commentator, worked for President Obama before that, and is especially known uh, for his work on clean energy and is a political commentator and thinks a lot about uh, the positioning in the Trump administration, how we can build uh, progressive powers. Our second segment is from someone you may not have heard of yet, but you very, very will very soon. And that is a new congresswoman from Washington State uh, by the name of uh, Pramila Jayapal. She is the first Indian-American woman to be elected to Congress, and uh, she actually comes out of the progressive movement. She ran a major immigrants' rights organization uh, in Seattle, which is now called One America, uh, and she ran on a big, bold progressive agenda and won in a very crowded field uh, to replace former Congressman Jim McDermott, and she has not gone to the back of the bus upon being elected. She actually has made a huge splash. In fact, she even objected to Donald Trump being elected uh, when, when it came before Congress, when the Electoral College vote came before Congress and was gaveled down by Joe Biden. And since then, she has already uh, taken a, a number of strong positions. She was out front in the whole travel ban controversy, and she's also introduced a bill with Senator Bernie Sanders uh, to make community college and technical college education free. So we'll have an interesting conversation with, uh, with Representative Jayapal, and you'll be hearing a lot about her in the future. I expect that she is going to be a major national progressive star. And then uh, we have a a two-segment interview uh, with Ai-jen Poo, uh, who is the head of the Domestic Workers Alliance, and she has been working for years to improve the economic condition and the quality of care and fight for caregivers in general. And she's also considered one of the top strategists in the whole progressive movement. And so those are the three interviews we have, and we will start with Van Jones. Okay, we're back at Battleground, Wisconsin, and we're fortunate to have Van Jones here with us, who just gave a rousing speech at the People's Action Founding Convention. And Van, you talked about how it's not just about, as you called it, strategery, and just doing more better campaign tactics and raising money in different ways, that there's something else we really need to change America. Well, you know, we need the, the moral and the spiritual power um, that comes from um, not left versus right, but just right versus wrong. And I think that people have gotten so triggered and so hurt, and rightfully so, by what Trump represents, that we, there's a danger that we actually start to, to, to uh, feed what we're fighting or start to, to become who we oppose, at least at a moral level, emotional level, spiritual level. He's divisive, we become divisive. He's fear-based, we become fear-based. And so we just have to make sure that we don't give away our spiritual power, our moral power, um, just the power that we have because we love everybody, um, and we should love everybody up, you know, maybe up to and including Donald Trump. I got, I got, I got to have a lot more therapy to love Donald Trump, but I can love, you know, a lot of people who voted for him, and I'm trying to love more people every day. I think that's going to be what makes a difference. 
I mean, it's a very profound point that in war, people become like each other. Yes. The war drives it, and you both become the enemy and act that way, and it changes you. And right. you're talking about avoiding that. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people are very upset with Trump being elected. And I remember, I think it was election night or right after, you called it a white lash yes. on cable television. Yes. And so what do you say to progressives you're so upset about with people who went and voted for Donald Trump and how we should approach them in order not only just to beat Trump but to create real change in this country? Well, you know, I said it was a white lash in part. I felt mm-hmm. like, um, there, and I said that night, that there are a lot of different factors that were going on, but that one of the factors was this, um, this white lash uh, by some parts of his voting base that were just very uncomfortable with the black president and Black Lives Matter and everything else. It got turned into, you know, Van Jones said all of the Trump voters are racist and whatever. I never said that. Um, I think we have to tell the truth. The truth is there are some actual neo-Nazis and hardcore bigots in his voting base, and that's not his entire voting base. There's many, 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 many millions of people who voted for Donald Trump who don't agree with those ideas um, and for whom those ideas were even distasteful, but just not disqualifying um, because they they were concerned about... um, uh, you know, uh, reproductive uh, choice issues, or they were concerned about, you know, something else. And so uh, we have to make sure that, you know, of course, we, we challenge racism and bias and bigotry wherever we find it, but um, to, 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 to label all the Trump voters, if you voted for a bigot, you are a bigot. If you voted for a sexist, you are a sexist. I don't think that's a smart strategy. A, I don't think it's true, but I also don't think it's a smart strategy. A lot of people voted for Hillary Clinton and held their nose. Um, and so, um, so I, I just think it's just it's not true. It's not fair. Um, but also, it's dumb strategy because you're then just giving Trump millions of people. I want him to have to fight for every person every day. I'm not going to give him one person. Um, and I'm going to and, and and I don't care who they vote for at the end of the day. Uh, if they're if they're struggling and striving and they and they have a hard time, I'm going to fight for them. I'm not just going to fight against them. And I think that the movement that comes up that's like that, that, that puts people first, even before politics. Somebody says, well, why are you helping the coal miners? They're never going to vote for Democrats. I said, because they're sick. Because they've been thrown under the bus. I don't want to live in a country where people get thrown under the bus. What does it have to do with who they vote for? Um, we've got to get back to that. Yeah, I, I heard your comments in context, and I didn't think you were calling people racist at all. Right. But when you're an eloquent person, say striking things, they can go and misrepresent yes, it, and it goes around uh, on and, social media, and, and, and both, In both directions. I, I said um, that uh, uh, a part of Donald Trump's speech uh, that he gave to Congress was extraordinary, and that if he kept giving, if he kept doing things like that, he was going to be there for eight years. And it was reported, you know, Van Jones praises Trump, you know, uh, says he's going to be there for eight years. And I, I said, that's not what I said. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the perils, as you know, the perils of this business is that um, uh, uh, there's no do-overs. It's live TV, live radio often. Uh, there's no do-overs. And, and if you say it, it's going to be on YouTube forever. So you better, right. get, you better get it right. Or, if, no, you're not going to always get it right, but just have a, have a lot of patience for the public. Um, talking about love is hard in the age of Trump. Do you you share the idea that, quite frankly, a lot of white areas, uh, predominant areas and rural areas are in in economic decline and that there's just a sense that uh, that people are frustrated and upset and don't see a future and they've almost turned against government because they don't believe in it anymore because they think it's corrupt. They don't represent them. And then they just, what the heck, vote for Trump. Is that part of what went on? That's a part of it. But also, it's not just economic decline. Families are in decline. Mm -hmm. There's a spiritual decline. There's an opioid crisis and right. epidemic. Um, most music sucks right now. I mean, it's a lot of stuff <laughs> happening, man. And so, you know, it, we have to, 
you know, we have to, to really get ourselves out of this thing of, you know, people are hurt, they're lonely, they're scared, people are beautiful, people are awful, people are people. And, um, you know, but I'm not going to let somebody's bad vote turn me into a bad person and have somebody, uh, uh, I'm never going to close my heart. Listen, I go into prisons and I, and I will sit with people who have done things that, that would, you know, shock the conscience. Um, but I can look through their, their, their deeds and see their humanity. Um, even in a prison cell, um, uh, I find genius, I find beauty, I find uh, greatness. And if I can find genius and beauty uh, in those places where it's not even being encouraged, I mean, they, they're really trying to break people in these prisons. I mean, they're, they're yeah, not yeah. trying to give them anything. Yeah. And yet still that beauty shines through, that genius shines through, that magic shines through. If I can, you know, then, then it's not that hard for me to, to look at a, at a guy who's been out of work for, for seven years or, se- or, or longer um, or is afraid he's going to be out of work next year. Um, he might do something desperate. He might do something that I don't approve of. But damn, you're not going to speak to somebody? You're going to unfriend somebody from your Facebook over politics? Listen, I've been in politics my whole life. These, these politicians ain't worth, the, they ain't worth all that. So I know you have to run, but let me ask you one quick thing. I, we had Aijan Pu on a little earlier, and she feels like we're at the precipice of a, the next great social movement of great change in the United States in a positive way. Do you feel that there's that opportunity right now that with what's going on after the election? I hate to disagree with Aijan Pu. I mean, she's one of the greatest you know, leaders that we have, but I don't, to say we're at the precipice, I, it would make it seem like it's not already happening. She might have been said that. I was more, okay. more okay, on language. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. I think it's already happening. I mean, listen, let's just look at the reality here. George W. Bush was a disaster for eight years. And at the end of that eight years, we still didn't have a movement as sophisticated, um, as diverse, uh, as strong as what we have in the first hundred days of Trump. I mean, you know, the, this resistance is not a normal thing. Um, it's very sophisticated. Um, it's got lots of different issue groups and, and um, identity groups, and uh, people are working together. You, you know, we stopped Trump's you know, Muslim ban, at least for now, stopped yep. his attempt to destroy health care, mm-hmm. at least so far. Um, I mean, he, he, he's not going to be able to pass the budget. I mean, this is not, not Hitler. He's not rolling over us. I mean, he's got every card, and he, doesn't, he can't play them because we keep playing the two or three cards that we have so well. And we're going to have a lot more pain, a lot more losses. We're going to, you know, Supreme Court's going to probably be a, a, a generational or longer disaster. We, we're going to pay a price for not having stopped this guy and not having taken him seriously. But he has unleashed, um, you know, a potentially uh, world historic force uh, for democracy and for justice. And we're just getting started. Okay, that was great. Thanks for joining us. I know you have a really busy schedule. Glad and to be here. Great Thank speech you. today. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. at Battleground Wisconsin. We're at the founding convention of People's Action, and uh, we are thrilled to be joined by a new congresswoman who has already made a huge kind of splash, and it's uh, Pramila Jayapal. She's a new congresswoman from Seattle, and uh, rather than uh, kind of sing at the back of the bus, there's this weird old <laughs> tradition that you're supposed to be quiet when you first get elected. <laughs> she started her whole career by objecting uh, to Donald Trump's uh, you know, election was gaveled down by Joe Biden and has made huge headlines ever since. So we're glad you're with us. Thanks Thank for joining us. Thank you so much. Us. Thanks for having me. So they're even calling you the anti-Trump. 
So can you talk a little bit about why that might be and, uh, you know, your path to Congress yeah. and, and what you're trying to accomplish? You're an organizer. You're like, you come from the same kind of organization uh, that Citizen National Wisconsin is, which is thrilling. Yeah. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yeah. why you've made such a big splash and how you see things? Yeah, well, I'm an immigrant. Um, I came to the United States when I was 16 years old by myself. Um, my parents had about $5,000 in their bank account. They used the whole thing to send me here because they felt like this is the place that I would get the best opportunity. And when you look at what Trump has been doing and saying what he ran on. Um, he ran on a platform to get rid of people like me, you know, people yeah. who are immigrants. He's right. uh, terrorized women. He's, you know, used violent speech against women. He's talked horribly about people of color in general. Um, and he really stands for, I think, tearing down opportunity, not building it up. And there, maybe there were some people who thought that that's what he was going to do, but his policies have been very clear, even in the first 100 days, that he is not looking to rebuild opportunity in this country. So my work has always been about really bringing voices to the table that are not there. It's been about organizing people for power, for political power, to make sure that we are actually at the table and making decisions. And so I suppose my being in Congress now, the reason people call me the anti-Trump is because I know why I'm here. And it is to make sure that we actually bring this country back to a place where we're fighting for working people across this country, fighting for people of color, really making sure that we bring in economic gender and uh, gender justice and economic justice and racial justice together. Um, something that Donald Trump has been very clear he's going to do everything he can to destroy. So I'm proud to be the anti-Trump. Um, if that's what people want to call me, I feel like I don't, um, you know, I'm not new to this work and there was no reason for me to sit quietly as I saw things that were completely unjust happening. Um, also, I think because of all of my work on immigration and having started what is now the largest immigrant advocacy mm -hmm. organization in Washington state, one of the largest in the country right after 9-11, at that time we were fighting George Bush, but it was much of the same pushback on Muslims and on Arab Americans and civil liberties abuses. And we sued the Bush administration and we won around the deportation of thousands of Somalis. So I don't I think we have no time to sit back and be quiet. We have to organize. We have to bring new structures into elected office. And we have to create a new system to really have us work in inside and outside strategy. It's really not one or the other. We're really doing both all of the time. And so I'm really proud to be here and, and, and fighting um, for what I believe in every single day. And it reminds me, I once got to have dinner with Eric Schneiderman at a Session New York event, and he was saying that he was a state setter, and he looked around, and everyone had the small staffs, and they were on their own, and he saw all these groups, these progressive groups, and if he aligned with them, he'd have much more power. Yeah. And he says that's the only way we became attorney general, and it seems like because you come out of the movement, you get that the, there's much more power beyond you, just your congressional office, right, if you can oh, align absolutely. with the social movements that are... No, that are, absolutely, and even when I ran, I said this campaign is not about me, it's about we. I, I know that grammar isn't good there, but it R rhymes. Really? Um, and so our, you know, even the way we ran our campaign, we knocked on 170,000 doors. We made over 290,000 phone calls. We were on the streets. We, we had 1,100 active volunteers who gave us over 10,000 hours of volunteer time. Um, you know, we had kids who were 12 years old and getting involved in a political campaign for the first time and really building that leadership ladder. So more organizers, more women of color, which is something near and dear to my heart, 
Um, I really believe that there's a particular intersectional lens that women of color can bring um, to elected office and to leadership positions. And so very committed to trying to get more of us in. Um, and it feels despairing sometimes, but I'm more hopeful in some ways than I ever have been because I see people awake in a whole new way. And um, I just mentioned that, you know, I had over 5,000 people at my town halls, two-thirds of whom had never been to any such event, had never talked to an elected official. So we have an opportunity, and I'm excited about that. And I know you have limited time, but let me ask you one question. final question, because we do a lot of work on health care, and I know our, our counterpart, Washington Community Action Network, in your state does as well, and uh, a lot of people didn't understand that health care would be the, top, the first big issue in the Trump years, and so, you know, it's amazing to us that they ran on cheaper health care, they ran on lower deductibles, on everyone having access. Trump said everyone would be covered Paul Ryan in Wisconsin, a lot of things. <laughs> who now, now is your speaker, right, yes, said that right. no one would be worse off. Have you been, you've seen the inner workings now, have you been surprised that, that they actually tried mm. to run one way, like progressives, then do this bait and switch, and then how they kind of have been caught uh, in, in the act, basically? Well, I think Trump says whatever he needs to say to whatever audience is in front of him. That is not what Republicans do. And if you look at what Paul Ryan has said, you know, he says things like he's been dreaming about getting rid of Medicaid since he was drinking at a keg. Um, So they have a very clear agenda. I don't actually think that Trump himself necessarily has such a clear agenda. I think he allows people around him to have an agenda and he allows that to move forward and he's completely uneducated about most of these topics and is willing to sort of say whatever he needs to say to whatever crowd which I think is really dangerous and so the fact that they were um, they overreached mm-hmm. so much and so badly that you know and now they have no excuse because they they control all three chambers the both chambers and the presidency right. so they need to be able to deliver and it's very clear that they have a caucus that's extremely divided and the more they go to one direction um, the more they lose the other direction but the only reason they're losing the moderates is because people across the country are forcing that conversation in the districts that's I think those I moderates think, yes. would be quite happy to vote for some of those things if there wasn't such a big um, you know organizing effort in their districts but when Jason Chaffetz goes home and gets yelled at and then ultimately has to step down and resign is because he knows there is a force that is pulling that district back I I don't even want to say to the left I just want to say to doing what is right for people and um, and that's uh, that's what I think they don't understand is is Trump in some ways has been a bigger unifier maybe than anything else and a bigger motivator than anything else. And so we're seeing this action around the country. And it's why groups like yours, um, Wisconsin Citizen, Citizen Action of Wisconsin, yeah. of Wisconsin and Washington Community yeah. Action Network and, and People's Action yeah. is so important because anybody who thinks this is um, this would happen without people's voices in the streets and, you know, at the town halls and on the phones is really missing the point. So this is people across the United States of America organizing and making these things happen. 
And so I, I think as an organizer, you couldn't be more right that people say it's the Freedom Caucus, it's to the right, but the bright spotlight that was shined by average citizens taking action since the election is what prevented this from happening. Were you, uh, close with this, surprised when on Thursday they delayed the vote, a Thursday, then the Friday, we were all waiting, we had it on C-SPAN, and then all of a sudden they just said, we now stand in recess. It was amazing. <laughs> it was really amazing. And I was, um, there are four committees of record for the healthcare vote budget, uh, ways and Means Appropriations and Workforce and Ed, and I'm vice ranking on budget, so I got to speak on the floor that day. And I remember just sitting there the whole day. You know, we were just, I mean, we didn't think that they had the votes, but we kept wondering if there was some jujitsu move that they were going to pull and somehow pull it out. And for me, I think I I thought that the the only way that maybe they would get this thing done was by convincing people that the rest of their agenda was in jeopardy if they didn't pass this thing and so that yeah. they would somehow find a way to unite even though they hated it and they would come together and pass it but i just remember being on the floor when federica wilson um you know who was speaking and and she she has this high voice and she she was the last speech she was speaking and she said I was watching, um yeah. you know she said i just have a question for you don't you people get sick and you know right <laughs> after she spoke they 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 pulled the they pulled the bill um from the vote because they just didn't have they didn't have what it took and it it had been increasingly clear over the last couple of hours that that was the case we had seen Paul Ryan you know we had heard that Paul Ryan was going in to tell Trump that he didn't have the votes right. and, but it was such a massive overreach I mean to propose a trillion dollar a trillion dollars in tax cuts for the wealthiest was insanity and to do that on the backs of 880 billion dollars being cut from medicaid and the age tax you know for folks between 50 and 64 to see a $14,000 premium increase was just crazy and in the end i think moderate republicans couldn't go back home and tell grandma that she was going to lose her nursing home or you know the kid that needs the asthma inhaler that they weren't going to be able to get it anymore you just hit the nail on the head so uh, it's been great to have Representative uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal on the, and if you uh, and if you haven't heard her before, she's a freshman. That's why you have not. But she's already made a splash, and I need you to make predictions. But I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from her, <laughs> and maybe down the road we can have her back on Battleground Wisconsin. But just uh, keep watching. She's one of the one of the people on the front lines fighting to take back the United States of America. Thank and we have you a real so organizer much. in Congress, which is great. Well, thank you for the great work you're doing. You're in a really important state, so can't say enough how important important what you're doing is, and I'll be right there with you. Great. Thank right. you very Thank much. You. Uh, welcome back to Battleground, uh, Wisconsin. This is uh, Robert Craig, and uh, we're thrilled to be joined by Ai-Jen Poo. Um, she's the uh, director of the Domestic Workers Alliance, a national organization, and we're interviewing her at the People's Action Founding Convention, the Rise Up Convention at the Omni Shoreham Hotel in Washington, D.C. So Ai-Jen, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk with you. So uh, some of our audience has heard of you because you're in the media a lot. You've written a lot of articles in, in progressive media, especially. Uh, but um, yeah, for those who don't know, uh, iGen is one of the top strategists in the whole progressive movement and uh, gave the initial framing speech at this whole founding convention. So that's how the kind of regard she is held at um, overall nationally. So we're talking to really one of the most important leaders in the, in the modern progressive movement. 
And uh, she talked last night, and this is what I want to ask her about. Uh, she felt like we're on the precipice of a great new social movement, that it's like you know, being in the progressive movement at the turn of the last century with fighting Bob LaFollette and the New Deal being something that's coming and people can feel momentum, but they don't know what's going to be yet exactly how it's going to happen. So can you talk, Ijen, a little bit about why you think that? Because it's a compelling and exciting idea. Yes, actually. And it, it isn't my idea. It um, I actually heard this social movement historian named Francis Fox Piven speak mm -hmm. in 2012, not long after the protests in Wisconsin, not long after Occupy Wall Street. Um, and what she was saying is that in the protests in Wisconsin and in Occupy and in the Dreamers and in the Fight for 15, what she was seeing was the early signals that a great, the next great social movement in this country, one that would fundamentally redefine our democracy, was on its way. That those were kind of the activist indications that something big was coming. And she said that, she, that we would know when it, has, when it had arrived when millions of everyday people were in motion and in the street in a different way. And I kept trying to imagine what would that look like? What would that feel like? And on January 21st, when I was in Washington for the Women's March on Washington, I was on the stage and I looked out at the sea of people. You couldn't see the end in any direction of people. And I thought, this must be it. This must be the coming of that great social movement, like the civil rights movement, like the labor movement of the 1930s, one that would forever change our country and our democracy. And I believe that that's what we're in right now. So it's, it's really interesting because it came right after what should be a real disaster for progressives as the election of Donald Trump. And maybe there were signs with things like Wall Street and, and the, the 2011 protests in Wisconsin, uh, but even the Bernie Sanders campaign brought a lot of people into politics and had an excitement that the Hillary Clinton campaign didn't. Uh, but it, it's a fascinating idea that people would be in such motion. And I guess the concern is, is that if it's called a resistance, that it's just not Trump, that there isn't any kind of unity or coherence to this. And it sounds like you and obviously Professor Fox Priven think that there's something more to it than just a reaction to uh, in a, a very extreme, you know, pres a new president. Yes, absolutely. I think there's much more to it. I mean, she even named that she thought that this movement was going to be a movement to transform inequality, both economic and political inequality. And I think what we're seeing is that there's a range of motivations for people to come in and get active in a different way in the movement. Some people are frustrated at um, the outrageous um, way in which this administration is governing. Some people are frustrated at the hateful, divisive rhetoric and narrative. There are all kinds of reasons, but at the heart of it, people want a different future. They want to, they want economic opportunity and they wanted that before this election and they want a voice. They, they, the connection between political inequality and economic inequality mm -hmm. is sharpening for people. And so getting out there, I think there's a way that these, all of these issues are starting to connect in a way that um, has the potential to unleash a different kind of power for us. And you point to political and economic inequality being connected, which we 
unfortunately, that's one of the blind spots in American history where we think just given political equality on paper is enough. And we should have learned in Reconstruction after the Civil War exactly. that it was the opposite, that we uh, gave African-Americans for a time fundamental civil rights with the 14th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, but then we didn't do anything about the economic structure of the South, and they still were totally controlled by the same planters. Exactly. And so then once the federal government you know, removed its, its, uh, its intervention, then we literally got Jim Crow. Exactly. That's why it's so important that as we're building and resisting, that we're actually articulating what is the vision, right? What is the bold, economic, inclusive, multiracial agenda, uh, economic agenda that can transform reality for millions and millions of families from small towns to big cities across the country? And I know uh, you've worked a lot with domestic workers, and that's a group of people uh, that don't have economic power, don't have a voice. I know that I spent six years when I worked for SEIU in Wisconsin creating a home care union, oh. which Walker got rid of in one stroke of the pen as part of Act 10. But you know, home care workers were its critical profession, but they were seen as independent providers. They had no even right to form a union. And so they weren't going to have any economic power. And of course, they were paid uh, just ghastly wages. Uh, and so that's what happens when you're powerless. And so. What did you learn? What have you learned? Because you're still doing it, working with domestic workers to try to give them economic power and a political voice. So much. I mean, I, I so appreciate you naming that history of the exclusion of this workforce from some of the most basic rights that we take for granted. That that history is rooted in the history of racial exclusion of African Americans and our basic labor laws in the New Deal. And we've lived in the shadow, this workforce has lived in the shadow of that exclusion for generations. And it's forced us to have to be creative about how we organize, how we build power, and how we do it in conjunction and partnership with consumers, families, seniors, people with disabilities who count on care every single day in order to live independently and with dignity. We've actually created a campaign called Caring Across Generations, which is calling for a whole new investment in supporting caregiving in America, supporting the ability of families, working class families who are barely able to make ends meet, be able to afford quality childcare, quality elder care and paid family leave on the one hand, and allowing for these jobs, every single care job, to be a good job that you can take pride in and support your family on. Right now, there's no money in the system. Families can't afford care. We can't raise the wages. And we need a whole new approach in the 21st century. So we've united with family caregivers, with consumers of care, and the whole workforce to say, let's organize together. Let's build a caring majority in this country to actually achieve what we want. It's, it's the kind of bold economic vision that we need in this period. Families are not interested in the incremental tinkering around the edges. People want big ideas and bold solutions. I couldn't agree with you more on the bold big ideas, and it's what Bernie's success was. He actually stood for something that was clear, right? That's right. And I think you're right about caregiving. It's about what we value. Exactly. Right? And specifically, um, 
we did it, it we, as a budget, a lot of the listeners know about it, Wisconsin Budget for All, an alternative budget. We did, Citizen National Wisconsin, with the Wisconsin Council of Children, Families, and others to show that if you cleaned up the tax code, you could make big investments. And one of them was to give a raise to caregivers, to child caregivers That's and to great. home care workers. And to start talking about that as part of an economic vision and saying this is vital work, especially in an aging society. That's right. And a society where we now know that a child's future is formed in the first couple years of That's their brain right. development. And so we need very high quality child care, yes. but we don't invest in it at all. And we don't respect uh, child caregivers or home care workers or domestic workers, other caregivers, right? Yeah, we call care work and domestic work the work that makes all other work possible, right? It's that work to care for the most precious elements of our lives, our kids, our aging loved ones, making it possible for us to go out and participate in the workforce, knowing that the people we love are in good hands. It's what could be more important, and yet we're talking about an annual median income for home care workers of $13,000 per year. I mean, what town can you survive in on $13,000 per year? It's outrageous. When we say, essentially, I mean, look what we say. We say that, you know, the sky's the limit if you work on Wall Street, but if you do caregiving work that that you're somehow disposable right That's right and That's in fact right. no one you, you need to be put in an economic position where no one cares for you later almost like it's some, it's some exactly. sort of bizarre self-sacrifice right? who's going to care for the caregiver that is right. going to be a big question for us yes so it seems like i mean a very different vision of the economy and when and we're getting close to break when we come back i want to ask you about how this will all look different uh, than the new deal in great society but when you're it's interesting how uh, literally conservative ideology says we can we can do things for less that we can we can gut Medicaid and it will be better they never say that about the defense budget right right so it's amazing how money doesn't matter when it's things we don't care about right, right or the exactly. Affordable Care Act the same debate right but money is about power and who is valued in our in our society it's about priorities exactly yeah. so um, well, we're just we'll we'll leave it there, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Igen about Igen Poo is our guest, the uh, head of the Domestic Workers Alliance, and we're here live at the People's Action Founding Convention Rise Up at the Omni Shoreham Hotel in Washington D.C. So we'll be back. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we're back uh, with Aijen Pu, the um, head of the Domestic Workers Alliance, and is and also is uh, we're we're talking to her at the founding convention of uh, People's Action, the Rise Up Convention, in Washington D.C. at the historic Omni Shoreham Hotel, and so we were talking about. Uh, how iGen and and scholars like uh, and scholar, some scholars actually believe that we're at the precipice of a great new social movement, and so I wanted to ask iGen, since that's a very exciting idea, how it would not just be the progressive movement or the New Deal or the Great Society all over again. We're a very different society, and how it would differ. And one difference was is that we were very diverse in the 19th, early 20th century, but we had this idea that everyone was going to melt together and be one thing, a conglomerate, the American, and now we have a much a, a view that people should be able to retain their previous heritage and identities while also fully participating in our society. So it's a very different vision. I think it probably has very different implications for how this movement's going to look and what it's going to accomplish. Absolutely. Um, if, if we were to look at the Women's March, for example, one of the things that was so powerful about it for me was not only was it multi-generational and multi-racial, but people were carrying signs that they had made by hand 
They weren't activist-made pre-printed signs. They were handmade signs about every single issue imaginable. Everything from health care to education, worker rights to climate change. I mean, people brought all the things that they cared about, all the things that they dream about for their kids, and brought them, made them a part of this movement and this march. And it felt actually great. It didn't feel like we had to focus. It didn't feel like there was room enough for all of it. And I think that's the kind of movement that the 21st century American people want. We want a movement where we can be our full selves and we can have lots of dreams and aspirations for ourselves and our families and we don't have to choose. It's not a zero-sum political game, but actually one where we are more powerful. The more holistic we can be, the more powerful we are. You don't have to go and get a uh, ranch house in a, in a new suburb and just meld in with right. everyone else, right? right. And, you can be who you are. Right. Yes, exactly. So, you know, how is this going to look different, say, than the New Deal, which was almost entirely economic and didn't really involve identity? It just seems like and people will disparage identity politics. I don't know how you'd have politics without identity, and maybe the critique is identity without understanding the economy and the political system. You need to have, it seems like, both. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. It's a both and. There's often this way that identity politics gets pitted against economic issues, but the truth of it is that that's often white identity politics that does that, <laughs> that does that segmenting and pitting against, that you can't actually separate. And and my workforce is a perfect example. The fastest growing workforce in the economy is over 90% women Mm -hmm. and disproportionately women of color. And it is no accident that this workforce has been historically and systematically devalued and told again and again that it's not real work, it's not, um, it shouldn't be included in the same protections, that there's a, a way in which the economy has structured the disenfranchisement of a, a female um, disproportionately of color workforce. So the way that the economy works has everything to do with race and gender, identity and experience. And we have to be able to understand that if we're going to change it. Um, and so I think that we, the more dimensions of how power operates in society and how identity is created, the more we understand that, the more powerful we'll be as we start to change it and to create more equity. And so, and the language makes us blind to it. So in the 1930s, uh, it was identity politics when we said that domestic workers, farm workers, wouldn't be part of the National Labor Relations Act and where the people covered would be mostly white men who did manufacturing work. Right. And there was an identity choice being made. It just was never acknowledged and then it was seen as universalistic, right? right? exactly. And so it, it's sometimes the absence of something, the silence, is as powerful as, as, as a straight-out racial or, 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 or sexual or, or anti-ethnic statement. That's a great point. That's a great way of putting it, actually. And so if we're articulating these identities, one problem we have is is that it looks like, I mean, Van Jones called what happened in the election a white lash, right? Mm -hmm. That there's a certain segment of the white community, even if they're economically challenged, who feel threatened by the the changing society and by them maybe not being the majority 
um, in the future. And it seems like they're, and so they're, they seem to be acting out against other people simply saying, being here and, and being a part of our society. And we see this in the immigration backlash, obviously, most forcefully. So how do we counteract that? Because you certainly have worked in this field a long time. It seems like that's the old divide and conquer. Well, I, I really love campaigns um, because I used to compare campa- great campaigns to great love affairs because they are these containers for a lot of growth and transformation, mm-hmm. meaning that when you have an effort where we're all in motion, moving in the same direction towards a common goal, then when we are then when we actually try to engage each other about the issues that have historically divided us or make us different, it's a very different context for that. And I think that we need to find the kind of economic, um, race-conscious economic agenda in this country that can unite broad segments of us so that we're moving in the same direction. And in that context, we should have hard conversations about what we do and don't understand about one another. And so, you know, one of the things we're working on is something called universal family family care. This idea that there should be one fund that we all contribute to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us afford child care, elder care, and paid family leave. Basically all the things we need to do to work and raise, have families too. Um, and we think that this is the kind of 21st century idea that allows, that supports working people um, in our realities today. We're no longer in a situation where we can count on women to stay home and take care of the kids and take care of mom and dad everyone's out there working, right? So we need a different level of support and infrastructure. And I'll tell you, that vision for universal family care is so popular from the immigrant community in New York City, you know, in Brooklyn, New York City, to um, rural Michigan. This is, a, this is an idea that people love and that actually addresses pain points of really diverse families. And so we need more of those ideas that can be unifying and get in motion to try to achieve them. In Michigan, people are organizing for universal family care, and there was actually a candidate named Darren Camilleri who ran on universal family care as his agenda, his main agenda item. Wow. And he won in a district, he won by 500 votes in a district that voted for Trump by 6,000 votes. And I think that goes to show you that there are issues that unite diverse, broad cross-sections of this country, and we got to get emotion around those. So it would be a, like a mechanism, like a small payroll tax in order, to, in order to pay for it, kind of similar to some of the family medical leave bills yeah. that exist, mm-hmm. which is great. I can tell you it's a frustration getting unity with Democratic Party on that. I was on the platform committee, uh, a Bernie representative, and uh, we were fighting for um, uh, the, the, the idea of family medical leave and we couldn't get the Clinton forces to agree because they would not agree to the tiny payroll tax uh, to fund it, even though you couldn't really have it for lower wage service sector workers unless it was funded that way because they, they don't have paid time to apply, right, right. the family medical leave. And it went so far that they actually sent Eleanor Holmes Norton up to argue against it mm. in order to kill it in platform committee. Mm. So uh, we really need to you know, push that we, if we're going to get something great like this, we need to pay for it, right? That's right. We do need to pay for it. Absolutely. And we have to make sure that it's also available to non-traditional workers, people who are working in self-employed, independent contracted positions. Um, So there's a lot of thought 
that has to go into this, but that's the kind of work we need to be doing, right? That's the yeah. direction. That's the future. And it, you know, with virtually no one having pensions anymore, it, right. it, uh, well, that's you the pay other in all the time, then this, this supplements that a little. We have to start doing things universally. It was one of the big decisions that was made after World War II that we wouldn't have a universal pension system. It would have been much better, but corporate America uh, killed it. In fact, they threw huge amounts of money at labor unions in order not to have that, mm. but it was, it's exactly what we needed. Right, right. We do, in, in this era, you know, our current framework for policy um, was established under a very different economic era, as I'm sure you talk about quite a bit on the show. And we actually need a new framework. We need a new social contract that establishes a new set of universalisms um, and, and a new baseline of expectation for people in this country that allows people to actually have a shot in this economy, right? A new set of fundamental expectations. You talked about social movements being transformative, and usually we see them in a linear sort of way. The social movement fights to change something, and its product is the social change. But you're saying that the process itself changes us. The process itself is in some ways the most powerful force for change um, of all. Um, When I think about uh, what happens when people actually realize their own agency and their own power to shape the future, and it happens in conjunction with their neighbors and their hairdresser and people that, um, that they didn't know they cared about. Um, but have come to care about. There is such powerful transformation in how we start to see each other differently as we're in motion together around shared goals. So I think that's a great way to close. And we've uh, been thrilled to interview uh, Aijen Pu, the uh, head of the Domestic Workers Alliance here at the People's Action Founding Convention. And I think it was one of the most insightful, in-depth interviews about the future of this country that we've had in a very long time, if ever, on Battleground Wisconsin. So it's been great to have you on. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work in Wisconsin. Thank you. We will. (laughs) Uh, So that's it for this week's Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, We want to thank Van Jones, uh, Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal, and uh, Ai-Jen Poo for appearing with us. Next week, we'll be back with the full panel and also some additional special interviews that we recorded at the People's Action Founding Convention. Until then, have a great week.